Section 3 of Invisible Links This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft Flack The Spirit of Fasting and Petter Nord Part 3 I shall almost be compelled to leave reality and turn to the world of saga and extravagance to be able to relate what now happened. If young Petter Nord had been Per the swineherd with a gold crown under his hat, it would all have seemed simple and natural. But no one, of course, will believe me if I say that Petter Nord also wore a royal crown on his toe hair. No one can ever know how many wonderful things happen in that little town. No one can guess how many enchanted princesses are waiting there for the shepherd boy of adventure. At first it looked as if there were to be no more adventures, for when Petter Nord had been set free by the old mare, and for the second time had to flee in shame and disgrace from the town, the same thoughts came over him as when he fled the first time. The Polska tunes rang again, suddenly in his ears, and loudest among them all sounded the old ring-dance. Christmas time has come, Christmas time has come, and after Christmas time comes Easter. That is not true at all, that is not true at all, for Lent comes after Christmas feasting. And he saw distinctly the pallid spirit of fasting stealing about over the earth, with her bundle of twigs on her arm, and she called to him, Spendthrift, spendthrift! You have wished to celebrate the festival of revenge and reparation during the time of fasting that is called life. Can you afford such extravagances, foolish one? Thereupon he had again sworn obedience and become the quiet and thrifty workman. He again stood peaceful and sensible at his work. No one could believe that it was he who had roared with rage and flung about the people in the street as an elk at bay shakes off the dogs. A few weeks later Halvorsen came to him at the machine shop. He looked him up at his niece's desire. She wished, if possible, to speak to him that same day. Petter Nord began to shake and tremble when he saw Halvorsen. It was as if he had seen a slippery snake. He did not know which he wished most, to strike him or to run away from him, but he soon perceived that Halvorsen looked much troubled. The tradesman looked as one does after having been out in a strong wind. The muscles of his face were drawn, his mouth was compressed, his eyes red and full of tears. He struggled visibly with some sorrow. The only thing in him that was the same was his voice. It was as inhumanly expressionless as ever. "'You need not be afraid of the old story, nor of the new one either,' said Halvorsen. "'It is known that you were with those who made all the trouble with us the other day, and, as we supposed that they came from here, 
I could learn where you were. Edith is going to die soon, he continued, and his whole face twitched as if it would fall to pieces. She wishes to speak to you before she dies, but we wish you no harm. Of course I shall come, said Petenord. Soon they were both on board the steamer. Petenord was decked out in his fine Sunday clothes. Under his hat played and smiled all the dreams of his boyhood in a veritable kingly crown. They encircled his light hair. Edith's message made him quite dizzy. Had he not always thought that fine ladies would love him? And now here was one who wished to see him before she died. Most wonderful of all things, wonderful. He sat and thought of her as she had been formerly. How proud, how alive, and now she was going to die. He was in such sorrow for her sake. But that she had been thinking of him all these years. A warm, sweet melancholy came over him. He was really there again, the old mad Petenord. As soon as he approached the village, the spirit of fasting went away from him, with disgust and contempt. Halvorsen could not keep still for a moment. The heavy gale, which he alone perceived, swept him forward and back on the deck. As he passed Petter, he murmured a few words, so that the latter could know by what path his despairing thoughts wandered. They found her on the ground, half dead, blood everywhere about her, he said once, and another time, Was she not good? Was she not beautiful? How could such things come to her? And again, She has made me good too, could not see her sitting in sorrow all day long and ruining the account book with her tears. Then this came. A clever child besides, won her way with me, made my home pleasant, got me acquaintances among fine people, understood what she was after, but could not resist her. He wandered away to the bow of the boat. When he came back, he said, I cannot bear to have her die. He said it all with that helpless voice which he could not subdue or control. Petter Nord had a proud feeling that such a man as he who wore a royal crown on his brow had no right to be angry with Halvorsen. The latter was separated from men by his infirmity and could not win their love. Therefore he had to treat them all as enemies. He was not to be measured by the same standard as other people. Petter Nord sank again into his dreams. She had remembered him all these years, and now she could not die before she had seen him. Oh, fancy that a young girl for all these years had been thinking of him, loving him, missing him. As soon as they landed and reached the tradesman's house, he was taken to Edith, who was waiting for him in the arbor. The happy Petter woke from his dreams when he saw her. She was a fair vision, this girl, withering away in emulation with the rootless birches around her. Her big eyes had darkened and grown clearer, 
Her hands were so thin and transparent that one feared to touch them for their fragility. And it was she who loved him. Of course he had to love her instantly in return, deeply, dearly, ardently. It was bliss after so many years to feel his heart glow at the sight of a fellow-being. He had stopped motionless at the entrance of the arbor, while eyes, heart, and brain worked most eagerly. When she saw how he stood and stared at her, she began to smile with that most despairing smile in the world, the smile of the very ill that says, See, this is what I have become, but do not count on me. I cannot be beautiful and charming any longer. I must die soon. It brought him back to reality. He saw that he had to do not with a vision, but with a spirit which was about to spread its wings, and therefore had made the walls of its prison so delicate and transparent. It now showed so plainly in his face, and in the way he took Edith's hand, that he all at once suffered with her suffering, that he had forgotten everything but grief, that she was going to die. The sick girl felt the same pity for herself, and her eyes filled with tears. Oh, what sympathy he felt for her from the first moment! He understood instantly that she would not wish to show her emotion. Of course it was agitating for her to see him, whom she had longed for so long, but it was her weakness that had made her betray herself. She naturally would not like him to pay any attention to it and so he began on an innocent subject of conversation. "'Do you know what happened to my white mice?' he said. She looked at him with admiration. He seemed to wish to make the way easier for her. "'I let them loose in the shop,' she said. "'They have thriven well.' "'No, really. Are there any of them left?' "'Halverson says that he will never be rid of Petanor's mice.' They have revenged you, you understand, she said with meaning. It was a very good race, answered Petter Nord proudly. The conversation lagged for a while. Edith closed her eyes as if to rest, and he kept a respectful silence. His last answer she had not understood. He had not responded to what she had said about revenge. When he began to talk of the mice, she believed that he understood what she wished to say to him. She knew that he had come to the town a few weeks before to be revenged. Poor Petternard! Many a time she had wondered what had become of him. Many a night had the cries of the frightened boy come to her in dreams. It was partly for his sake that she should never again have to live through such a night, that she had begun to reform her uncle, had made his house a home for him, had let the lonely man feel the value of having a sympathetic friend near him. Her lot was now again bound together with that of Petter Nord. His attempt at revenge had frightened her to death. As soon as she had regained her strength after that severe attack, she had begged Halverson to look him up. And Petter Nord sat there and believed that it was for love she had called him. He could not know that she believed him vindictive, coarse, degraded, a drunkard, and a bully. He who was an example to all his comrades in the working quarter, 
he could not guess that she had summoned him in order to preach virtue and good habits to him, in order to say to him, if nothing else helped, Look at me, Pedernard. It is your want of judgment, your vindictiveness, that is the cause of my death. Think of it, and begin another life. He had come filled with love of life and dreams, to celebrate love's festival, and she lay there and thought of plunging him into the black depth of remorse. There must have been something of the glory of the kingly crown shining on her, which made her hesitate, so that she decided to question him first. But, Petter Nord, was it really you who were here with those three terrible men? He flushed and looked on the ground. Then he had to tell her the whole story of the day with all his shame. In the first place, what unmanliness he had shown in not sooner demanding justice, and how he had only gone because he was forced to it, and then how he had been beaten and whipped instead of beating someone himself. He did not dare to look up while he was speaking. He did expect that even those gentle eyes would judge him with forbearance. He felt that he was robbing himself of all the glory with which she must have surrounded him in her dreams. But, Petter Nord, what would have happened if you had met Halverson? asked Edith when he had finished. He hung his head even lower. I saw him well enough, he said. He had not gone away. He was working in his garden outside the gates. The boy in the shop told me everything. Well, why did you not avenge yourself? said Edith. He was spared nothing. But he felt the inquiring glance of her eyes on him, and he began obediently. When the men lay down to sleep on a slope, I went alone to find Halverson, for I wished to have him to myself. He was working there, staking his peace. It must have rained in torrents the day before, for the peace had been broken down to the ground. Some of the leaves were whipped to ribbons, others covered with earth. It was like a hospital and Halverson was the doctor. He raised them up so gently, brushed away the earth, and helped the poor little things to cling to the twigs. I stood and looked on. He did not hear me, and he had no time to look up. I tried to retain my anger by force, but what could I do? I could not fly at him while he was busy with the peace. My time will come afterwards, I thought. But then he started up, struck himself on the forehead, and rushed away to the hotbed. He lifted the glass and looked in, and I looked too, for he seemed to be in the depth of despair. Yes, it was dreadful, of course. He had forgotten to shade it from the sun, and it must have been terribly hot under the glass. The cucumbers lay there half dead and gasped for breath. Some of the leaves were burnt, and others were drooping. I was so overcome, I too, that I never thought what I was doing, and Halverson caught sight of my shadow. Look here, take the watering pot that is standing in the asparagus bed, and run down to the river for water, he said without looking up. I suppose he thought it was the gardener's boy, and I ran. Did you, Petternard? Yes, you see, 
The cucumbers ought not to suffer on account of our enmity. I thought myself that it showed lack of character, and so on. But I could not help it. I wanted to see if they would come to life. When I came back, he had lifted the glass off, and still stood and stared despairingly. I thrust the watering pot into his hand, and he began to pour over them. Yes, it was almost visible what good it did in the hotbed. I thought almost that they raised themselves, and he must have thought so too, for he began to laugh. Then I ran away. You ran away, Petenard. You ran away. Edith had raised herself in the armchair. I could not strike him, said Petenard. Edith felt an ever stronger impression of the glory round poor Petenard's head. So it was not necessary to plunge him into the depth of remorse with the heavy burden of sin around his neck. Was he such a man, such a tender-hearted, sensitive man? She sank back, closed her eyes, and thought. She did not need to say it to him. She was astonished that she felt such a relief not to have to cause him pain. I am so glad that you have given up your plans for revenge, Petenord, she began in friendly tones. It was about that that I wished to talk to you. Now I can die in peace. He drew a long breath. She was not unfriendly. She did not look as if she had been mistaken in him. She must love him very much when she could excuse such cowardice, for when she said that she had sent for him to ask him to give up his thoughts of revenge, it must have been from bashfulness not to have to acknowledge the real reason of the summons. She was so right in it. He who was the man ought to say the first word. How can they let you die? he burst out. Halverson and all the others, how can they? If I were here, I would refuse to let you die. I would give you all my strength. I would take all your suffering. I have no pain, she said, smiling at such bold promises. I am thinking that I would like to carry you away like a frozen bird, lay you under my vest like a young squirrel. Fancy what it would be to work if something so warm and soft was waiting for one at home. But if you were well, there would be so many. She looked at him with weary surprise, prepared to put him back in his proper place. But she must have seen again something of the magic crown about the boy's head for she had patience with him. He meant nothing. He had to talk as he did. He was not like others. Ah, she said indifferently, there are not so many, Petenord. There has hardly been anyone in earnest. But now there came another turn to his advantage. In her suddenly awoke the eager hunger of a sick person for compassion. She longed for the tenderness, the pity that the poor workman could give her. She felt the need of being nearer that deep, disinterested sympathy. The sick cannot have enough of it. She wished to read it in his glance and his whole being. Words meant nothing to her. I like to see you here, she said. 
Sit here for a while, and tell me what you have been doing these six years. While he talked, she lay and drew in the indescribable something which passed between them. She heard, and yet she did not hear. But, by some strange sympathy, she felt herself strengthened and vivified. Nevertheless, she did get one impression from his story. It took her into the workman's quarter, into a new world, full of tumultuous hopes and strength. How they longed and trusted, how they hated and suffered. How happy the oppressed are, she said. It occurred to her, with a longing for life, that there might be something for her there, she who always needed oppression and compulsion to make life worth living. If I were well, she said, perhaps I would have gone there with you. I should enjoy working my way up with someone I liked. Petter Nord started. Here was the confession that he had been waiting for the whole time. Oh, can you not live, he prayed, and he beamed with happiness. She became observant. That is love, she said to herself, and now he believes that I am also in love. What madness, that Vermland boy! She wished to bring him back to reason, but there was something in Petter Nord on that day of victory that restrained her. She had not the heart to spoil his happy mood. She felt compassion for his foolishness and let him live in it. It does not matter as I am to die so soon, she said to herself. But she sent him away soon after, and when he asked if he might not come again, she forbade him absolutely. But, she said, do you remember our graveyard up on the hill, Petternord? You can come there in a few weeks and thank death for that day. As Petter Nord came out of the garden, he met Halvorsen. He was walking forward and back in despair, and his only consolation was the thought that Edith was laying the burden of remorse on the wrongdoer. To see him overpowered by pangs of conscience, for that alone had he sought him out. But when he met the young workman, he saw that Edith had not told him everything. He was serious, but at the same time he certainly was madly happy. "'Has Edith told you why she's dying?' said Halvorsen. "'No,' answered Petter Nord. Halvorsen laid his hand on his shoulder, as if to keep him from escaping. "'She is dying because of you, because of your damned pranks.' She was slightly ill before, but it was nothing. No one thought that she would die, but then you came with those three wretched tramps, and they frightened her while you were in my shop. They chased her, and she ran away from them, ran till she got hemorrhage. But that is what you wanted. You wished to be revenged on me by killing her, wished to leave me lonely and unhappy without a soul near me who cares for me. All my joy you wish to take from me, all my joy. He would have gone on for ever, overwhelmed Petter Nord with reproaches, killed him with curses, but the latter tore himself away and ran, as if an earthquake had shaken the town and all the houses were tumbling down. 
End of part three of The Spirit of Fasting and Petter Nord From Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft Flack Read by Lars Rolander